Well, good morning to you all. I'm not Pastor John. You know that. Uh, Pastor John, I think, is on vacation. So you get me today. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. So uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to start by praying that God would bless this time again. And so I'd ask you to join me. So, Father, thank you for this day. Uh, we do praise you, uh, Lord, that uh, just how your word reminds us of who you are and your faithfulness and your goodness to us, uh, how in Christ we've been saved and redeemed, and how your Holy Spirit is active and working in each of our hearts as believers. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would be active uh, in the preaching of this word. pray that you would use uh, these words to impact not only our minds but our hearts, uh, that we might have a desire to uh, become more and more like Christ, that we might look more and more like Christ as we see who you are, uh, a sovereign God, a saving God, and a God who has called us uh, to live holy lives. So we thank you that you are good and you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it is always a pleasure to come and be reminded uh, each Sunday morning, uh, and we've been reminded of so many different truths so far about who God is. Uh, and we come to the scriptures every week because we know that in them there is truth. Right? That's why we read. Why else would you come unless you were looking for something? And so we come and we look and we find these truths about who God is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. And then we also come and we're often challenged by what we're called to do in Scripture. And so this morning, uh, we're going to take a look into uh, a passage of Scripture that actually includes all three of these things, uh, which is cool because most of the time we work all the way throughout Scripture and we can find something about God and we can find a call to what God has called us to do and then other things that are uh, what God has done. But every once in a while, you'll come across a passage of Scripture that has all three of these things woven together. And that passage this morning is going to be in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And so as we look at this this morning, uh, we're going to see three kind of key things, what I called foundation stones, you could call them pillars, kind of three main things that are important for us as believers to get right. Three things that if we get wrong, it kind of skews our view of God, it skews our view of how God works, and then it also could potentially skew what we think we're called to do. But Paul, thankfully, has worked all of these things together so that we can see them clearly and we can apply them to our lives. So who God is, what he's doing, and, and what he has done, and what our response to do. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at that. We're going to call it three things. First, the meticulous. Second, the miracle. And third, the mandate. So in looking at the meticulous, we will examine God's sovereignty over all things. Second, we're going to look at the miracle of God's saving grace for sinners by the death and resurrection of Christ. And then third, and finally, we're going to look at the mandate which is God's call to his children to be holy as he is holy. And one of the cool things about this passage is that in the original language, these, these verses, these nine verses, so 3 through 14, it's actually one sentence. So it's one idea, it's one thought. 
which is really kind of important to understand because Paul is not disconnecting sovereignty with salvation, with sanctification, but he's actually weaving them all together. He talks about them in a way that we should also talk about them. We should think about when we have a conversation about sovereignty, somewhere around the corner, salvation should come into that. Or if we're talking about salvation, somewhere in that conversation, sanctification is probably going to come into that. We've already done that in our liturgy this morning. We've not just talked about who God is, but we've talked about who God is, what he has done, and what he's called us to do. And so we actually will see that this morning by looking at these three things uh, in the book of Ephesians. Now I'm going to work backwards. So in your bulletin you have an outline, and you'll notice uh, on the back uh, that I'm starting on verse 11. I'm then going to work to verse 7 and then verse 4. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I think, not that Paul got it wrong, uh, we'll go ahead and say that he got it right, but sometimes when, when explaining things, it, it's easier, at least in my mind, to go from the really, really big lofty things of who God is and his sovereignty and his meticulous sovereignty, because that's really, really big. That could be a sermon series on its own. And then we're going to narrow that down. We're going to take it from the meticulous sovereignty of God and we're going to narrow it down into the sovereignty of God and how he worked out the salvation for sinners. And then we're going to take that and narrow it down, kind of like a funnel, into the call of what we've been called to do in the sanctification process. So really big, and it works its way down into, well, what do we do with that? The application of how then should we live? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 3, or I'm sorry, 1, and starting in verse 3, uh, we're going to go ahead and read says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And so starting in verse 11, uh, the first thing that we see is what we call the meticulous, the meticulous sovereignty of God. So let's start by first kind of defining two words. Uh, I think that's always helpful when you, when you define things or throw out new words. So meticulous, we've defined as a very careful and with great attention to every detail. So very careful and with great attention to every detail. 
And then I define sovereignty as God's absolute rule and authority over all things. So if I combine those two definitions, we could say that meticulous sovereignty is God's very careful and with great attention to every detail, absolute rule and authority over all things. Which means that there's nothing outside of God's view. And there's nothing outside of God's control, down to the smallest details. Now there is some mystery in how all this works together, and I think it's important to understand that we are not God, and we don't have the capacities to fathom how God can and does work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we can look to the scriptures and our lives, and we can see that God has never once been surprised by something. God is never stumped. God is never confused. God's plan A never fails, and he doesn't have to turn and look to plan B. No, God, he does everything, as it says in verse 11, according to the counsel of his will. So, in verse 11, uh, the second part of that, it reads... Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, when he says all things, you know, this, this passage kind of has, a, has a, a path of really how God has taken his sovereignty and working that out through into salvation through Christ and then into sanctification. But, but Paul throws out this isn't just limiting God's sovereignty to the plan of salvation, but he's actually saying God's sovereign over everything, all things. For all of time. So it's not limited to just the topic of salvation, though it does include that, as we see throughout verses 3 through 14. Now, when the topic of God's meticulous sovereignty comes up, often there are some difficult questions that come to mind because it's hard for us to take all of the puzzle pieces of life and try to fit them together so that they make sense to us. And since that whole thing could be its own sermon, or sermon series, I'm going to give you a few points that I think are helpful when it comes to God's sovereignty. So the first one that we see in this section of scripture, Paul, he doesn't even question. He doesn't even ask the question if God is in control of everything, right? So Paul does not question if God is able to accomplish all things according to his will. He simply states the truth that God does work all things according to his will. So there's no need for Paul to argue all of those questions that might come up, right? Like, how can God be sovereign if, and then fill in the blank, or if God is sovereign, why, and then fill in the blank. Paul doesn't ask those questions. Paul simply states the truth of what it is, and that is God is in control of all things. The second thing that I think can be helpful is that there are some things that we as human finite beings will never fully comprehend about how God works. But there are some things that are really easy to comprehend about God. And he's made those very clear. They're not things that you have to dig and search and learn different languages and, you know, study forever. And one of those verses that has come to mind often, and I kind of use this verse as sort of rails to keep my mind from going places that they probably shouldn't go. And that verse is in Psalm 119, verse 68. 
Uh, it's a good one to highlight in your Bible uh, if you do that sort of thing. Um, and it reads that you are good and do good. Simple. Six words, right? You are good and do good. So how does that help? How does that help kind of keep your, your questions in line so that you don't end up accusing God of something, right? Because anytime you find yourself accusing God of something, you need to step back and go, well, that can't be right. So if you start with God is good and does good, those are some bumpers for your thoughts. It'll help you uh, kind of come back to where if you're, if you're attributing wrong to God or you're attributing evil to God, you need to come back and go, well, that can't be true because the very simple things of who God is and being good and all he does is good keeps me from ever going there. Now, that might not be completely satisfying to you, but my friends, uh, we will not ever understand the whole mind of God. Uh, but we will, like we sang, the glorious, the golden gates. Like, I love songs like that, by the way. This isn't in the script. But anything that talks about us coming before God to heaven should get you excited. It should like well something up in you and just be like, praise God, I can't wait. But for all of eternity, this God, this infinite God, and how he works all these things will be revealing things to us with our new capacities, with our new bodies and that's going to be awesome. So look forward to that. So though probably impossible for our limited finite minds to comprehend how God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, we can rest in the fact that he is, and we can trust him to do the very best thing for this world and in our individual lives. For he does all things for his glory and for our good. So what are, what are some applications that we can look at when it comes to the meticulous sovereignty of God? I got three points that I think can be helpful uh, when, you, when you look at such a gigantic idea about God being in control of everything. These are just three things that I think you might be able to apply throughout this next week. First, be encouraged that we have a good God who is in control. So even when things in your life seem chaotic, Know that God is at work, and he's always working. And God has never once failed, which is a pretty, a pretty amazing truth. Like, God has never once failed at anything, in any way. And so we praise him for that. The next one is to be challenged. Be challenged to trust God in the little details of your life, for they're not insignificant. For if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, which means that he cares about everything that is happening in your life. So be encouraged, be challenged, and then be watchful. Lift up your eyes each day and look around to see how and what God is doing in your life and in the lives of the people around you. Because, my friends, God is working. You know, I've sat in lots of small groups over the years, and one of the things that um, comes up every once in a while, it's like, and it's that dreaded question, maybe it's dreaded, hey, what are you thankful for today? Or how did you see God work? And people kind of go, ah. Uh. Like, 
And you're like, somebody, please just. So what does that tell me? It just tells me that, like, one, that's not the immediate thing on our mind. But two, that we need to be more aware and looking to see how God's working. Because in your life, God is working all the time. And so look for those things and attribute those good things to God. Because when you take those things that you see and then you make them known to other people, what does that do? It brings praise to the glorious grace of God. Which, as we re- just read in Ephesians, is a reoccurring theme. That's a reoccurring uh, goal of why God does all things. So be encouraged, be challenged, and be watchful. And that takes us to our second M. So we, first we had the meticulous sovereignty of God over all things. Next, we see the second foundation stone that we can lay, which is actually the pinnacle of all human history. It is the miracle of God's redeeming work in our salvation. So verse 7 reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So here we see a deeper, more focused view on God's sovereignty as it takes us from God moving and working all things to God moving and working all details for all time to accomplish the greatest miracle of all time, which is the redeeming work of saving sinners from eternal death and giving them eternal life. It's here that we see into the heart of the triune God, both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that in eternity past they set forth an eternal plan of salvation to save sinful, rebellious people from condemnation and to save them to a life of joyful satisfaction in the one who created them. And so to what end, you might ask, why? Why did God plan it this way? Why would he lay out this plan of salvation in such a way that would require the death of his son, the sacrificial death of his son? Well, we can see why God does what he does all throughout verses 3 through 14. And so I'm going to point out a few of them to you. Right at the beginning of verse 6, after he explains what Christ and God has done, he says, why does he do this? To the praise of his glorious grace. And then at the end of verse 7, why did Christ save? He says it was according to the riches of his grace. And then at the end of verse 12, why do we hope in Christ? It's to the praise of his glory. And then at the end of 14, we see it is to the praise of his glory. Anytime you see a reoccurring theme uh, working throughout there, it's something to pay attention to. And so why, why does God do what he does? Well, we can see that God in all his wisdom determined that his glory would be most clearly and perfectly seen and displayed by his divine saving grace. So by Christ coming, by Christ dying and saving sinners that is how God in his eternal plan saw fit that the most glory would be given to his name so we can define God's saving grace as this so God's saving grace is his free unmerited favor towards sinners in giving them salvation from sin and redeeming them for himself God's saving grace is his free, unmerited favor towards sinners in giving them salvation from sin and redeeming them for himself. 
So when we are saved, we are saved from sin, but we're not just saved from sin, but we are saved to God. In the here and now, we're actually saved from the penalty of sin, and we're saved from the power of sin. But as we did in our, our call to confession, as we do each week, we would all acknowledge that there's still a battle with sin, right? So um, Dennis used the, uh, our position, right? We are positionally holy, but our practices, we're still fighting and battling sin. So we are saved from the penalty of sin, and we are saved from the power of sin in one day, one glorious day, when we're with Christ in God in heaven, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Amen? Amen to that. Yeah. It is here in seeing God's saving grace and experiencing the miracle of salvation in our lives that our response should be like Paul, which is Paul's response is to praise him. We want to praise his glory, and we want to praise his glorious grace. Because this, my friends, is why we were created. We were created to taste and see and experience the grace of God and to worship him in a way that proclaims how awesome he is. It is the worship of God, that, it is in the worship of God that we are most fulfilled. It is here that we're most satisfied because we were actually created by God to be most fulfilled by God. And so anytime we take our eyes and fix them on something else, you will always find it lacking. You will always not be fulfilled. But when you turn your eyes to Christ, it is there that you actually find hope and peace and all of those good things from all those lists that, you know, Paul usually throws out in the epistles. So how did God extend this grace to us? Well, all throughout uh, these nine verses, uh, we see that he uses this term. It says, in him. In him, in him, in him, in him, over and over and over again. So what is, what is Paul referring to? Well, it's in Christ. It is in Christ that we have salvation. It is in Christ that we have freedom from sin. It is in Christ that there is therefore now no condemnation. It is in Christ that we have hope of eternal life. And it is in Christ that we have an eternal inheritance. So what did this grace, this unmerited, unearned, unworked for, free favor accomplish for us? It not only cleansed us from all of our past, present, and future sins, but it also restored our relationship with God. You see, we're no longer enemies. We're no longer hostile haters of God. No scripture now describes those who are in Christ, those who have died and been brought back to life in salvation, that they're new creatures, they're pure, they're not stained, but they're pure, they're white as snow, undefiled, set apart, holy ones, saints, adopted sons and daughters of the King. That is a description of who we are in Christ, which is pretty awesome. There's no greater gift, there's no greater display of grace and mercy ever known to man than what Christ has given to all who would call on his name, to all who would put their faith in him, and to all who would believe. This miracle of God's saving grace through Christ was meticulously planned before time began. Before one, time, one thing had been created, the all-powerful, sovereign God determined that he would display his glorious grace by the miracle of bringing dead, rebellious souls back to life, that they might know the goodness and kindness 
and mercy of the one who created all things. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. So how do we take how do we take such a grand, you know, I I'm going to jump back a little bit. I talked about God's sovereignty being really big. Salvation is gigantic too. Like a lot these these concepts aren't I used a funnel example. I'm like I'm not sure as I was saying that that this really works, but they're both huge ideas of how God works. And one day in glory we'll understand them better. So there you go. Moving on. So how do we apply this? How do we how do we apply the miracle of salvation daily? Right? We looked at how we applied the miracle of sovereignty. Now we'll look and it's three similar terms uh, but different applications. First, be encouraged. The work that Christ did on the cross has removed your sin and has given you a right relationship with God. You're no longer condemned. You're no longer a slave to sin. So you should act like it. You should live as though you are free. You have been freed from the dominion of Satan and sin and death. And you're now an adopted child of the king. So remember that. Be challenged, second, to live as an ambassador for Christ. So if Christ has set you free, if he's delivered you, that is amazing news. So go and tell the news to the world. Go and talk to your coworkers. Go and talk to your neighbors. Uh, look in your own home and share what Christ has done for you. Share, that, share these things so that they too might see and savor and believe in what Christ has done and find salvation. Because that brings more praise to the glorious grace of God. And then third, be watchful. For we still have an enemy who loves to accuse and lie and deceive. So we still have an enemy who would love to see us bring shame to the name of Christ by continuing to wallow in our former sins. So be watchful and fight for holiness. So be encouraged, be challenged, and be watchful. And that takes us to our third foundation stone the one that really is built upon the meticulous sovereignty and miracle of what God has done for us. And this is the one that kind of takes and it shifts the view off what God has done and what Christ has done, and, it's, and it shifts it more to our response or the call from God. This is the how then should you live in light of the glorious grace that has been shown us in the gospel. And this one we'll call the mandate. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here we see the call from God to believers to live a life that is pointing Christward. And this process is synergistic, meaning that it is a work between the Christian and the Holy Spirit. You see, the meticulous and the miracle really are one-sided. Uh, none of us were invited to the table when God in his counsel was determining how everything would be, right? That's not our part, nor do we really have a part in our salvation as opposed to just receiving it as a free gift by the grace of God. So both of those works are in Christ. Both of those works are done by God alone. This next one, the mandate is synergistic. 
which is both of us working together. So it's how do we live in light of God's mandate or God's sovereignty and in light of this miracle and this grace of salvation. It is here that we are we begin to live lives that are changed, lives that will reflect who God is and reflect what Christ has done. And this is the call that we have in verse 4 to be holy. This is also known as Dennis talked earlier and we've been mentioning it's also called sanctification sometimes you hear this called the christian walk or the pilgrim's journey all of them are looking at the process that we go through as believers from the day that we're saved until the day that we come to glory and now part of the sanctification process is a learning process it's a learning and understanding process about how precious the glorious grace of God is. As believers, we've been given this grace, so we should strive to never take it for granted, and we should never abuse it. So you might ask, how do you abuse grace? What do you mean by that? We abuse grace in multiple ways throughout our Christian lives, but here are a few ways. So every time that we sin, Every time that we sin, it is evidence that we have a low view of what Christ has done. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of or remembered the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. And this is the servant who owed what would be equivalent to millions and millions of dollars to his master. And his master comes to collect the debt and he begs him and he pleads and he says, I can't pay it. And the master does what? He shows mercy and grace, and he forgives him, and you go, that's amazing. And what does he turn around and do? He walks out to somebody who owes him a couple grand, and he says, give it to me. And the guy begs and pleads, and he says, no. Right? So what does that show us? It shows us somebody who doesn't understand fully what has been done for them. And so every time we sin, that is, that is part of what we're doing. We're, we're looking and we're saying, we don't actually understand the fullness of what Christ has done for me. Otherwise, I would show mercy, or I would turn, and I would run. So showing no mercy, showing that the grace that was extended to him had no value, is a way that we can abuse the grace that we've been shown. The next one, uh, and this kind of hit home because I, I was in a conversation not long ago uh, talking to a person who kind of explained their, how their skewed view of sovereignty really kind of led them uh, to disobedience and sin. And so the second thing, the second way that we can abuse grace is when we take pretty amazing godly truths and we try to apply them to our life so that we can continue in our own sin. So here's the example. As I was talking to this person, they basically had taken a, a view of sovereignty and said, well, God is in control of everything. When we were like, yeah, I just said that, right? That's right. And so I'm just going to trust him. Awesome. That's what we got to do. And not do anything that he says. And they didn't, ver they didn't verse it just like that, but I'm like, so 
God has called you to live a certain way, and you have this big view of sovereignty, but now you're not doing all of these other things. If in, in almost every passage we read this morning through our liturgy, through Galatians, right? as a believer, there's always this picture of this is who God is, this is what he's done for you, this is what you're called to do. None of those truths are any greater than another. So they were taking sovereignty and saying, I'm just going to trust God who's in control of all things, and so I'm just going to just do that. I'm just going to believe that and then continue to live in a different way. And I just thought to myself, that's, that's abusing sovereignty. You know, that's, that's like saying, I should, well, grace, grace abounds, right, when you sin, so I should just sin more and more. And Paul would say, well, by no means. Like you've been called to live a holy life. So in light of sovereignty, do not use sovereignty as a, as a way of, of justifying your sin. I hope that makes sense. Maybe the next time you go, well, I feel like I should be doing this, but you know what, I'm just going to trust God instead. Maybe that's, a good, maybe that's a good thing to go, well, or maybe I should do what he's called me to do and trust God in doing that. Because that's the work that we have. That's that synergistic work of the Holy Spirit working in us while we're also doing what we've been called to do. So we, Christian friend, we have not been called to sit idly and watch how God works in this world when he has called us to pursue holiness in every area of our life. Uh, We must not be a people who masks sin with the cover of sovereignty. But we need to look at the truth of sovereignty and we need to do what God has called us to do in light of that sovereignty and trust him. Uh, The passage that was going to be on the overhead this morning for us to reflect on, uh, but the projector was off, is Ephesians 2, uh, 10. So right after Paul is saying all these amazing truths about who God is, we find just in the next chapter, he says, For we, those who are in Christ, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were saved to do good works. We were not saved to be slothful, lazy people who look no different than the world around us. No, we're saved to be people who put on spiritual armor each day and are able to fight off the things of this world and, the sin, and sin and the devil with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we're called to do these things, hopefully, and with joy, so that when the world sees us, right, they see happy Christians, right, joyful Christians. Nobody wants to ask you, you know, why do you have the hope that you have when you're Eeyore, right? They ask you what's wrong. If everybody asks you what's wrong all the time, then something's wrong, I don't know, right? So, you should, you, you should, there should be a joy that you have because of these truths of who God is and knowing that there's a work, while you've been called to do this work, the Holy Spirit's working in you at the same time, which is what we see at the end of Ephesians uh, 13 and 14. It reads, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. You see, we will fail if we try to pursue holiness alone, but we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit 
And we have the promise of God that he who began this good work in us will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. But that does not mean, that does not mean that we don't need to strive to pursue holiness. So we must work and we must exercise our faith. Just like if you were to go run a marathon, if you, if you today, it's probably a good sample size, if I said, hey, 1030, everybody's running a marathon today, right? It's going to be some people be all excited. They're going to go and they're going to run and you're going to be like, that's amazing. They must have trained, right? Unless you're some freak athlete, right? The rest of us would start running and feel like we're going to die. Most of us would fail. Some of us would have permanent injuries. Okay, but when you start thinking about the Christian life, right, you have actually been given certain things, what we'll call fruits, what Paul calls fruits, that need to be exercised. They need to be worked on in order to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, in order to pursue that Christward view, that pursuit of God, that pursuit of holiness. We need to exercise our faith by trusting what God has called us to do. You know, last week, Pastor John talked about this theology of trust. And it came to mind as I was preparing. And he talked about the theology of trust not just being a mental assent to the notion or idea that I can trust God. It's not just the idea that we don't want to walk around and say, I can trust God, and then continue to worry and wallow in everything that is not trusting God. Right? Just because you state truths about who God is doesn't mean that you're actually applying those things to your life. And so that's what I call exercise. It's taking this idea that says, I do trust God in everything. And then the next time you worry about that thing, whatever that thing is, you turn back to God and you go, God, I know that I need to trust you. Holy Spirit, help me to put my trust in you and to fix my eyes on Christ so that I'm actually applying the truths that I know. So there's that, there's that, take that truth and apply it. And honestly, you might have to apply it every other minute because sometimes we're prone to worry, we're prone to being anxious, we're prone to whatever that might be. But it needs to be active. Um, if you can do push-ups, awesome. If you can't, today you could start and do one. And if you do that every day, eventually you're going to be able to do more. Trusting God is similar. The life of Abraham was very similar. God calls him to do something. He's like, okay, and he does it. And he gets to a point where he trusts God over and over and over and over again to where God calls him to do something very, very difficult like kill his own son. And he's like, okay, because you've never failed me. That's what, that's what we have to be working on in our lives. We have to be exercising our faith. So one of the ways, and this is kind of more of like a practical way that I thought would be helpful uh, in thinking about by way of application that we can exercise uh, our faith is by what we heard at the end of Galatians 5 uh, that Levi read for us this morning. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and right, and he gives us this list, he says, you know, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, and each of those things 
I want to remind you, if you're in Christ, you actually have them. These are not, these are not specific spiritual gifts that God just gave, you know, one person kindness and one person. No, if you're a believer, all of these are actually fruits that you have. And so how do we use those fruits to exercise our faith? Well, asking some simple questions like, um, if we look at love, right? How am I growing in love for the people around me? Do I love people? Do I examine my own heart and go, I'm not very loving? Okay, well then begin, right, with the help of the Holy Spirit to look for ways to love people. Like putting your phone on silent, totally a loving thing to do. Anyways, so, right, or, or right, each of these, we could go, we could go through each of these. Kindness, um, you know, most people don't go, man, I'm really unkind, but maybe some of you do. And I would say, look at that and, and don't, don't say, well, I'm just unkind, but today when you get up out of your pew, look around and say, how can I show kindness to somebody Maybe I see somebody carrying something and I ask if I can help. Maybe I shake a hand of somebody I've never seen. All of those things are exercising these fruits that God has given, given us uh, so that we will grow in holiness. Uh, one thing that we can't do as Christians, um, well, we can, but it's disobedience and wallowing in our sin, is we can't say stuff like, I'm just really an impatient person. Or, I just really have a temper. You're a new creation. You are a new creation. God has changed you. You might struggle with being impatient, but guess what? God and the Holy Spirit are working in you to develop in you patience. So pray for those things. And then practice them. So the next time you feel really annoyed by whatever annoys you, pray. And say, God, give me the patience to work through this. And see if God, in his kindness, will not give you what you need in that moment. Because I think that he will. The other one is, you know, that came up in my mind is, are you prone to anger? Do you yell at your kids? Do you yell at your spouse? Do you yell at everybody? Right? Whatever. Okay? Um, that can go down. As peace grows, which is a fruit of the Spirit in you, anger can dwindle. If you exercise one thing, the other will, will begin to get smaller. If you always exercise yelling and screaming at your kids and being angry, you're, you're never going to be a peacemaker. But you've been called to be a peacemaker. You've been called to be holy. I just hate when people tell me, that's just how I am. No, it's not. That's not how you are. You're not. You're new and you're saved. And that's awesome. So work on it. Exercise your will with the help of the Holy Spirit that you might grow in the holiness uh, that you've been called to. And when I was thinking about this, uh, remember you're not doing these things. You're not doing these things. Paul didn't write, you know, all of these amazing truths about God so that people would look at Paul and go, wow, Paul's really cool or really amazing or what a nice guy, Right? You're not helping people. You're not striving to be holy for the sake of what people think of you, but for the praise of his glorious grace. 
What Christ has done for you should be, an, actually it is enough, not should, it is enough that you can begin to develop and work out your salvation with fear and trembling as he works in you. So there we have it. We worship a meticulous, sovereign God who is in control of every detail of this world. We worship a God who, through Christ, gave us the miracle of salvation, that we have a relationship with him. And we worship a God who has promised to make us more and more into the image of his Son by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, working in us all the while, calling us to work with all of our efforts, with all of our being, to exert our will in the pursuit of holiness. Knowing that when we, that we have a promise that God, the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God, the one who can do all things, has said that he will do it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you are meticulously sovereign. Thank you for the miracle of salvation. And thank you that you've called us, you've mandated us to pursue holiness, but not leaving us to ourselves uh, to try to figure it out. But you've given us the Holy Spirit who is active and working in us. So we thank you for that. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would be um, bringing to mind uh, the little fruits in our life that need to grow. Uh, That you would bring Holy Spirit conviction uh, to our hearts and minds. Uh, And that not by way of guilt or fear, but a desire to make Christ look glorious to this world, we might exercise uh, our will uh, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and to grow in holiness. Amen.